Welcome to the Planet Trillion Trees podcast. I'm Eva Monheim. And I'm Hal Rosner. We are both certified arborists through the International Society of Arboriculture. The purpose of our podcast is to encourage tree planting and proper tree care for our urban forests, which include neighborhoods, parks, and other open spaces. We will also cover a myriad of tree topics, including the important role trees play in relationship to the climate crisis. Thank you for joining us. We'd like to thank our sponsor, Monheim Microphones. Monheim Microphones designs and handcrafts top-tier studio microphones and preamps right here in the United States in Hollywood, California. Their incredible line of innovative microphones and designs are used around the world by everyone from podcasters to top-charting record producers and singers. They recently released their new royalty microphone, Monheim Microphones Unparalleled Excellence. MonheimMicrophones.com. Verdant Earth Educators provides dynamic in-person training and online learning opportunities for environmental and horticultural businesses. Owned by ISA certified arborists and former university faculty, the Verdant Earth Educator team provides consultations on tree care and recommends climate resilient opportunities for your valued green spaces. Verdant Earth Educators is all about seeding knowledge for success. Find Verdant Earth Educators at verdantearthseducators.com. This podcast is being recorded on June 16th, 2023. Nakia Perez is co-founder of Philly Tree People and is an ISA certified arborist with a master's in environmental studies degree with a focus on environmental biology from the University of Pennsylvania. She also has a master's in liberal arts from Penn, a certificate in landscape plants from Temple University, a master of library and information science from the University of Buffalo, and a bachelor of fine arts in fine art photography from Rochester Institute of Technology. She was an intern at Bowman's Hill Wildflower Preserve, where she worked in their native plant nursery participated in interpretation activities, led garden walks for families, assisted with grounds maintenance, marketing, and data collection. Professionally, she works as a library director and research librarian, providing and developing research services for faculty and graduate students at Penn. She's also a Girl Scout troop leader and engages youth in tree planting, pollinator gardening, camping, and citizen science. Jacelyn Blank is an ISA certified arborist with a bachelor's degree in fine arts and has a master's in education along with Pennsylvania teaching certificates in elementary and special education. She is one of three co-founders of the federally recognized not-for-profit Pennsylvania Horticulture Society Tree Tenders Organization, Philly Tree People. When Jocelyn isn't volunteering her time with Philly Tree People, she teaches preschool children part-time at a not-for-profit play school in Fishtown, a neighborhood in Philadelphia. The play school is called By My Side. Here she focuses on children-led play. 
Jaslyn launched her own small business, Blank Slate Trees and Gardens, in 2021, where she works with Philadelphia clients on landscape design, garden creation, and maintenance. She is currently completing her Pollinator Steward Certificate through the worldwide organization Pollinator Partnership. Her ultimate career goals are to combine her love of teaching arboriculture and horticulture and continuing Philly Tree People's Green Corps, a youth employment education and empowerment group hiring students living and attending school in the Kensington neighborhoods while caring for Kensington's tree canopy and learning through hands-on experience. Welcome to the Plant a Trillion Trees podcast, Nakia and Jacelyn. We're delighted that you could be with us today. Thank you so much for asking us to join you. I live in the city of Philadelphia. You guys live in the city of Philadelphia. Eva lives right outside the city of Philadelphia. We all maintain this focus on restoration and maintenance of canopy. Tell us about Philly Tree People, how you got started, and tell us about the neighborhoods that you serve. I am from Philadelphia. I grew up in Philadelphia. I went away for college and I came back. I wanted to start making my neighborhood greener and the area of the city that uh, I live in, which is East Kensington and Jason also lives in, was very covered in concrete and has a very low tree canopy. And so I took the garden tenders training with PHS. I grew up going to uh, the flower show with my family every year. And so I happened upon uh, learning about the garden tenders training, probably from a serve about greening in Philly. And I said, oh, I need to go there because I started guerrilla gardening at the corner of my block and I started doing gardening in my yard and I felt like I needed to know more. Once I did that, I realized Tree Tenders program existed and I said, oh my gosh, we definitely need this in our neighborhood. So I went to the East Kensington Neighbors Association where I met Jacelyn and talked to people about it. And her and I were like, let's do this. (laughs) And so we took the Tree Tenders training and we uh, met another woman there named Dina Richmond. And then the three of us founded Billy Tree people in 2007. And we primarily operate in 19125 and 19134. Out of the Tree Tenders course and meeting Dina, what we learned was that if we had three or more people, we could start our own group and start accepting applications right away. We jumped on that opportunity and I can't even remember how many trees that we got in the ground that first time, but it was pretty big for a small group just starting. And since then, we would have probably 50 to 100 trees that we would plant in the fall and the spring. And we would always have about 100 volunteers who came out and they would come out pretty consistently for all of our events. And if I'm remembering correctly, you're from a nursery family. Is that right, Jacelyn? Yeah, I grew up in Chester County in Westchester, PA. My dad, I would say, is still a landscaper, had his own business. He also grew Christmas trees and other trees. So it was part of my existence, but not necessarily my education. I learned a lot more when I took the tree tenders training. He never went on to become a certified arborist, although he's a wealth of knowledge. That's great. Very cool. I was going to say is you're working in communities that have very little ground to plant because it's so highly populated. So how do you approach getting your tree pits prepared? I mean, 
I know Hal has done so many in the city, but how do you go about getting all that done? Because if you're planning 50, that's that's a big undertaking. We're fortunate enough to be in partnership with both the Pennsylvania Horticultural Society and the Philadelphia Parks and Recreation System. PHS is who predominantly handles the application process. We help facilitate our own organization, our group's applications and vet sites ahead of time and interface with property owners. It's predominantly the funding that PHS gets from state and federal grants and other fundraising sources to help pay for all of those costs. The property owners aren't charged a cent for the work that we're doing for them. So that's everything from interfacing with parks and recreations to have the sites inspected and making the 311 calls for utility, marking for those utilities. And they also pay for the contractors that come out and remove the concrete. And then we get the applications and work with property owners on the date that we're going to be doing plantings and organize the volunteers and get the trees and get them in the ground. Yeah, I feel like that's what our job is, uh, basically. It's logistics. Like we're not necessarily even on a given planting, planting the trees. We're organizing everyone to go out, to go to the sites, to make sure they're ready to accept trees. We train leaders to go out and help our volunteers, even the leaders are volunteers and we are as well, get the trees in the ground properly. And most of the stuff we do is paperwork behind the scenes throughout the year before the trees even go in the ground. That's such a great point. So I'm in Roxborough, Wissahick, and Maniunk, one zip code, three fairly large neighborhoods, but I concur. It's one thing to love trees, but as soon as you find that person with the logistical instincts and skill set, then you're really firing on all cylinders. And we are lucky enough to be experiencing something similar. And just to jump off and give a little context for our listeners is, What we're talking about today is Citizen Arborist, Citizens Urban Forestry Initiatives. And this is where it's got to happen, that so many of the cities in the U.S., you can't always wait around for the municipalities to step up and plant your trees. Citizens can do a fantastic job, arguably a better job than what a Parks and Rec or Forestry Department can do. So you got me really excited and enthusiastic. So let's keep talking. Well, you know, for tree tenders, when they went outside the city, I took care of the four counties and managed all the volunteers for those areas. And then, of course, they had volunteer groups. But you can have a small area, but it's a big lift because of all the logistics of knowing about the concrete and the phone calls that you have to make. Whereas we had to make phone calls out here in the suburbs, but it's not the same. I don't think it's the same stress that you have in the city. And I I want people to really understand that when you take this on, this is a huge, huge job. And a lot of people just think, oh, it just happens. Well, it doesn't just happen. There's a huge army of people behind it and to work it to get to where you need to be. And uh, like I said, we didn't have that same kind of issue. I mean, some places we did, but most of the time people would say, okay, well, let's plant it on our lawn. Mm -hmm. And if we can get approval to put it on your lawn, we don't have to deal with putting it on the street and trying to uh, get a bigger pit or what have you. So there's that. Yeah, there's 
so many more variables that we're dealing with and not just the removal of concrete, but being cognizant of Americans with Disabilities Act. So there's enough room on the sidewalk for people to get by. But it's also street corners and stop signs and traffic lights and electrical wires. You know, a lot of people will apply for trees and will be very sad that we have to say we we can't accept your application because of X, Y, and Z. And then they, they never thought yeah. of that before. <laughs> yeah, that probably takes the most time for us to actually assess whether or not we can have a, somebody could have a tree where they want one. And we really have to like look and measure and think about like, can we say yes to this person who really wants a tree? We want them to be able to have a tree. And they just sometimes cannot. And in terms of logistics, the concrete removal isn't something that we do. A contractor is hired to take care of that. Um, but one thing that I think people find surprising is that if they want a tree planted in fall, for example, they have to apply by May. And then there's a really long wait period. And then there's stuff that's going on with PHS, with the city of Philadelphia's Parks and Recs, working on um, with their arborists to go out and check the site and then coming back to us and telling us which are approved and denied and then us getting back to the homeowners. There's a lot of communications and back and forth that goes on over a long period of time before trees actually get planted. Yeah. And choosing the actual species that's going to be the most beneficial for that location. Now, do you allow them to plant in their backyards? So Philly Tree People... Um, through the tree tenders program, we used to generally accept yard tree applications and street tree applications, but yard trees through the program required that there was some sort of public accessibility of the tree, like within a certain distance of sidewalks and open spaces. So we only plant street trees. We don't really have people planting yard trees unless they meet those criteria. They're like in a schoolyard nearby where people walk like in some of the more non, like the commercial sites or the public spaces that are not houses, that's where those types of trees generally go. But even in some of those cases, we, there is concrete that needs to be removed or a tree pit needs to be dug. So generally, that's not something that we do. The city does have a program, a yard tree program that they started a number of years ago after Philly Tree People was formed. But they mostly do that. Do you plant in the triangles too? Like road triangles? No, we haven't. And there's some major pushback with uh, the streets department for having trees in those locations. In particular, in our neighborhood, we have a roundabout and streets department was very distressed about our guerrilla group planting flowers. And we're even... <laughs> yes. This made, this made a made the inquirer even at one point and they were distressed about the 42 inch tall cactus but not as distressed about the sinkholes on either side of the street but that's a whole other podcast um but they, <laughs> <laughs> there you go i love that specifically said absolutely no trees even though worldwide roundabouts are used to green and have trees and that trees actually help the flow of traffic slow down because you cannot see across the entire roundabout. Yeah, I was interfacing with uh, council and state reps and streets department there for a while fighting for my friends. And since then, it's been let go. <laughs> and it's a beautiful green space. Yeah, and again, it's logistics and it's also all the time behind the scenes that nobody ever knows about, which I'm glad you're bringing up right now, 
because a lot of a lot of cities have roundabouts and they put their Christmas tree in the middle there. And that's where they have their Christmas tree lighting celebrations. Mm-hmm. And it's kind of hard to believe that they kind of pushed back and not would, didn't want you to, to do anything in planting of a circle. But and anyway. 20 years in the city, I found that uh, the city of Philadelphia is slow in adopting anything new. <laughs> I want to ask what your process is in your respective neighborhoods for uh, canvassing, knocking on doors, and soliciting for street tree planting. How do you guys go about that? So when we first got started, we had a captive audience at the East Kensington Neighbors Association. We said, hey, we're going to do this. We've started our group, Apply for Trees. Here are the applications. Give them to your friends and neighbors. Tell everybody about them. We got a lot of applications immediately just from starting where we already were. And since then, we've visited a few other neighborhood organizations within the 19125 and 19134 zip codes and did the same thing, said, hey, trees are great. They're really important for so many reasons. And you can get one for free if you're a property owner. So people would fill those applications out and get them back to us. And I think over time, the number of applications that we receive like has dwindled because we haven't really gone out to those neighbors associations lately to make this announcement again to the new crop of civic-minded folks that are showing up. But other ways we do uh, get the word out is we have a really huge listserv of people. We talk to developers that we know, realtors, and some of the other neighbors associations get the word out for us. Like we'll email them. We'll send them Facebook posts and they'll reshare the information about when applications are due. Um, We'll put it in our newsletter, which we don't get out in a very uh, systematic, timely manner, but we get it out occasionally. One of the things that one of our neighbors associations has done, the Fishtown Neighbors Association, is they had a committee that was all about greening and they went ahead and asked us uh, about spreading the word. And so they had a bunch of people who wanted to get outside, knock on doors and uh, drop off flyers. And so they did that for us in the Fishtown neighborhood. And that was really great. We got some applications back from that. And they did door knocking, talking to people about trees and dropping those off. And more recently, one of our new board members, for a long time, it was just Dina, Jacelyn, and I, the founders of Philly Tree People, running everything, doing everything for almost the entire time we've been together. And I think we've had a couple of board members now for the past three, four, three years that, well, two years, really the current ones, the other current board members we have, have been on the board and helping us do some of these things. But one of them decided they wanted to make uh, door hangers so that we could just walk around and just hang them on doors that are appropriate. And that's something we're willing to hand to anybody. We have an instruction sheet about how you can decide and determine before you even put a door knocker on a door, whether or not a tree could go there. And then you could leave it in the right place. And so that's generally how things work. We probably need to get the word out all over again and go out to those neighborhood associations again. I can just say on another another avenue, what we've done is like the local papers of Back in the day, we would put ads in the papers for that. But more so recently with a tighter connection with Philadelphia Parks and Recreations, we'll have neighbors up north of us who will attend an association meeting or another meeting event and make a connection with Marissa Wilson from Tree Philly. And I've done this a couple of times where we've met on the block with that concerned neighbor and they've rallied behind their other neighbors to get involved. We'll have donuts and coffee. Marissa will bring the tablet 
And then I can go around with neighbors and vet sites and say whether they're eligible for a tree or not. And then Marissa is able to have them apply right on the spot. And that we did that one time with a neighbor who used to live near me who moved north. And uh, we got seven trees in the ground just in her general block a couple of years ago. And that's really, I think, where we get the majority of our applications is word of mouth and trying to host events like that to engage neighbors and and really vet their questions because there's a lot of doubt and there's a lot of skepticism and fear around trees being planted in the city. Um, You said something about working with realtors. Do you do like a welcome packet? Maybe that's what real real estate agents can do for you is have a welcome packet that they can hand out to all their new homeowners. What do you think? That would be awesome. Um, Something similar, I helped found the Friends of group for my son's school. And that was where I did my student teaching. And the Friends of groups had a realtor tour where they rented a bus and had a brown paper bag lunch and realtors in the neighborhood got to go and investigate all the local schools and meet principals. So similarly, there should be a greening aspect of that. I think we just know a bunch of realtors and are just disseminating our knowledge upon them. I think that's great. And I think they're really the people that have the boots on the ground, as Hal would say, that they're going and showing houses. So they would be really good to make a connection with. But anybody else out there in in our radio land or podcast land, think of that. Go to your realtors and really get your trees planted that way, too. That's really a good thing. Do you have a sense of how many hours you guys put towards Philly tree people on a given week. Do you both have other jobs or do you have a life? Yeah, I I have a 10-year-old and I also work full-time nine to five, Monday through Friday. So I have a full-time job and my kid is in a million activities and how much we devote in a week. It's very variable, I think, but maybe over the course of the year... I'd say at least an entire week's worth of work over the course of the year, probably more. I'm probably making yeah. it a little bit minimal, but that's probably about... You are making it minimal. Yeah, you are. <laughs> you are. Maybe a hundred yeah. hours or more. How about, how about yeah, the I'd month of June? hours is probably how much it takes for each of us to work on a tree planting. So we do two of those a year. Yeah. We have a few pruning clubs. And then we also do other things that come up or special plantings or other events or educational things. So yeah, I, we yeah. haven't really done an accounting. That's a good question. We should probably I think it's that. probably about up, up equal to a part-time job. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, it's my sense. Do you have Simon Sheets? Yeah. Okay. So you know what your your local people are doing, but you need to have a sign-in sheet too, because then you can translate that into dollars. So that if you want to go for a grant, you can say we have in kind. This is what we do in yeah. kind. This is how many hours we put in. That way you can get your grant. We used to have to do that up here in, in the suburbs. And that's how we would get really big grants. Because, you know, if you have like 500 hours, then they would match it with money for 500 hours. So Nikki has definitely collected the data in the past. And we have had to... Um calculate some for writing grants and then specifically two for helping PHS with leveraging for their grant funding. So the data is out there just off the top of our head. I mean, I I think the number is insurmountable. (laughs) 
<laughs> with what we do on rogue time. Yeah. I'm having a hard enough time tracking my mileage for my small business, <laughs> let alone the amount of hours I think about trees, <laughs> specifically for Philly. Yeah. Well said. Sure. Sure. And you have, you said you have a son, right? I have a daughter, but Jason- oh, daughter. I'm sorry. Uh, so, um, do you get the children involved in the planting? Oh yes, we 100 percent do. I'm also a Girl Scout leader, so I'm a Girl Scout troop leader, and I have had Girl Scouts help plant at a couple of different tree plantings. My kid has been at almost all of the tree plantings since she's been born. Maybe she missed a couple, maybe two or three. I had her strapped to my person. Right. I had her on me physically, like in the carrier. Um, So yes, we definitely get kids involved, not just our own, but others. Uh, Our events are all age events and all ability events. There's a lot of things that people can do at our tree planting that don't involve physical labor, where they could sit and help check people in, serve food, do different things. They can stand and make sure a tree or sit and make sure a tree is aligned properly and not like off kilter while somebody else does the heavy heavy lifting of putting the soil in. We even have tools that are small for different size kids. We have a really small shovel for toddlers and then we have another size shovel for like the tween age folks um, or people with like uh, not very strong arms. <laughs> we have like very tiny spades on long handles. But in addition to that, we've had uh, one, I can just think, I think I can think of one person at one of our local schools who brought her middle schoolers she would bring her middle schoolers to our plantings consistently every single planting. She'd figure out how to get them to come out on a Sunday, not a school day on a Sunday. And she'd bring a whole crop of kids. And those kids have since grown up and they're in college or have their own kids and have brought their own kids in some cases. So it's been really interesting to see that happen consistently. But definitely we've had other opportunities. I'll let Jacelyn take it from here. I have a son, but I'm also an educator. I teach preschool part-time. So I've been able to help really get quite a few of our school's trees planted at the school. And then I would do it on a school day so that staff and students could be involved. Well, we talked about kids. Let's tell some stories about community uh, buy-in. Do you get some positive feedback on all these efforts. I, I, I know uh, the past decade and a half or whatever, anytime I'm involved with a neighborhood tree planting, and a lot of times I'm in a neighborhood maybe for the first time, you can't help but leave at the end of the day feeling exhausted and wonderful. You know, that getting a half a dozen or 12 trees in the ground is a pretty good feeling. Are, are you getting similar feedback from, from your neighbors at large? I think overwhelmingly it's been a positive response. There's definitely the negative Nellies, but that's life. But it's also, like I said earlier, the city in general, it's hard to adopt change. And we're also trying to educate people in how the science of boriculture, especially urban boriculture, has changed so much because we have collected the data and found what works and what doesn't work. There's a lot of mistakes that have been made in the past where it's the wrong tree in the wrong site completely. Guilty. <laughs> and I, yes. and like we've even done that over time through working with Parks and Rec and PHS and just we're just learning. But overwhelmingly, it's been 
positive and even the negative Nellie sometimes after they see that a neighbor has gotten a tree and how beautiful and instantly gratifying it looks afterwards, they come to us and ask for a tree to be planted at their house as well. I mean, sometimes a lot of handholding to get through and to debunk the urban legends. <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Now, now all of your trees are bare root when you put them in? Yes, we exclusively are planting bare root trees. Uh, the bare root trees have basically 100% of their root system intact. They're very easy to carry and move for volunteers, especially, and volunteers of all ages, really. And it makes it a lot easier to get a lot of trees in the ground. And um, they are chosen like at nurseries that do bare root trees uh, or grow bare root trees and extract them that way by PHS. And then once those trees get shipped to PHS, they actually dip them in a slurry to keep their roots uh, hydrated before they get to us. And there's like a planting window of when we've got to get those in the ground. And so usually within the week, basically, of when they get taken out of the ground from the nursery and then get to us is about the length of time that takes usually. But yeah, in terms of buy-in and getting buy-in from the neighbors, I think getting youth involved is especially important in that case there. Jason and I are very civic-minded and we're always involved <laughs> in all sorts of things that are going on in our neighborhood. Like, here's just one example. I mean, this isn't specifically about trees, but we're out cleaning a lot one day. And um, we have some volunteers walking by us that um, helped tree planting with us. They've helped like, stu like students, like a group of kids walking down the street. One of them, we were like, hi, how are you? Um, because we recognize them from our tree planting. We're cleaning up and they're walking down the street with their friends. One of their friends throws a piece of trash on the ground and they're like, hey, what are you doing? You can't do that. We live here. And so earlier, I think Hal said something about the fact that you can't leave it and wait for somebody else to do the work for you. I feel like it's like a full circle sort of thing, like where you have to go out and clean up your sidewalk. You have to go out and plant your trees. You have to take care of them. And so we started with two tree plantings a year because that's what PHS has to offer, but then we realize we need to do more. We need to get more youth involved. And we also need to take care of the trees that already exist in our neighborhood and take care of all the trees that we're planting. And so we basically started both uh, two other programs, the Pruning Club program and the Green Poor Training program. Both of those were, were modeled off of UC Green in West Philly, which also is a 501c3 that does a lot of different types of work, including tree planting. And those things, I feel like were like natural and necessary transitions for us. That's a good point that that time in between, that's so critical, yeah. keeps everybody connected. What I want to find out is how many trees do you think you've lost like percentage wise with bear root? Because I've heard some communities say, oh, they lose like 50% of their bear root. And I'm like, what? 50%? I think it's the other way around. You lose more with ball and burlap and the containerized trees than you do with the bare root. And I just want to hear from the horses' mouth, the horses' mouths, uh, about how you manage and how how successful you are with the takes on those yeah. bare root. So some of the stuff that I was doing when I, I was first collecting data about what what kind of stuff we were working on and looking at our trees and replacements, how many replacements we got. And I looked at our mortality rate and early on, I think we were about like an eight to 10% mortality rate. 
And those could be from any number of reasons, like the trees had a defect at the nursery that came to us where the roots were growing incorrectly, J-rooting. And then there's also issues with cars running over trees, people actually killing trees on purpose, <laughs> removing them from the ground, and disease and pests and not watering enough and those things. So there have been like a variety of reasons why that has happened. But I know that uh, PHS actually tracks the mortality rate of trees over time. And it's usually like way under 20%, like even across the whole city for the bare root trees. And then sometimes during some seasons, like a specific species will have an issue. And that's not necessarily related to what people are doing in the neighborhoods with the trees and how they're caring for them. It's like coming from elsewhere outside. I hope that answers your question well. That is a perfect answer. We need to know if you're successful and you have a, a low mortality rate and high success rate. I think that that makes it even more positive for those who want to enter uh, or create an organization like this. I think I, I want to just jump in on that and say that the PHS Tree Tender training is 30 years old. In order to keep that funding source coming, they have to have the data that proves that it's success. And so large majority of it is a success and therefore the, the tree tender training program will continue. Yeah. yeah. I think Good it point. also helps too that many of us who have been doing it for a long time and are very passionate about it are also becoming certified arborists or in general, just continuing education alongside with our cohorts. So we're doing, we're understanding and learning the up-to-date science of what's happening in urban arboriculture. How did uh, becoming certified help you as with what you do? And why should other neighborhood arborists think about getting certified? So both Jason and I are ISA certified arborists. I was the first one in our group to decide to go ahead and get that certification. And primarily it was because we, I wanted to know more. I thought it would be useful for us. I thought it would be informative. And I was already going to so many horticulture conferences and workshops and et cetera on my own dime anyway. Yeah. Uh, just because I wanted to just take it all in. I mean, but then the other thing about it was we wanted to run a pruning club and we thought that it would be really important to have an ISA certified arborist with us at all times when we have a pruning club. So UC Green was kind of the first group to have their own citizen pruning club. And we started ours many years later. And we were, were also like on uh, some committees with groups all that are citywide groups where we talk about this stuff, uh, trees and the Philadelphia Parks and Recreation kind of wanted to make sure that anytime we go out to have a pruning club, we have a certified arborist on hand. And so we'd have volunteer certified arborists at the beginning when we first started our pruning clubs come out and help us. Johanna Fine, for example, came out to numerous pruning clubs of ours and several people from PHS. And so um, we just thought that it had to happen. So Anytime we had a pruning club, I was usually there. And then later um, we were like, well, I can't always be there. So we really kind of need some more people that can do this. And Jacelyn is really great at like making friends with all the arborists folks around her. So she invited lots of others that have come since. And some have been on your podcast. That's right. Yeah. Yes, we have. We have. And um, you know what? The other thing too is that being a certified arborist, I'm not sure the people who are listening whether you know this or not, but in order for us to keep our credentials, we have to have certain amount of credits per per cycle. 
before we renew our, our certification. And if you don't have those credits, you're not going to get renewed. And I think that in itself is an incentive to be an arborist. And you were saying on your own dime, of course, I, and I relate to that because as a faculty, you always have to keep paying for things out of your own pocket. And if you're going to be paying, you might as well be recertifying, recredentialing yourself because those credentials mean a lot in our industry. And as you were saying, you already have your built-in arborist crew with your team and you don't have to go hunt for one or two or whatever it is. That's one thing you can wipe off your plate with, with that you don't even have to worry about. And I think a lot of times um, people people kind of hesitate. I don't know whether I can do it or whether, you know. And I remember working with tree tenders and they said, you know, Eva, you should really go for it. You should go for your certification. This is a long time ago. And I said, okay, I'll go for mine. And so I did. And it was, it was you know, took the test and passed and, and got my certification. And I really, it opened up a lot of other doors too. So I'm sure it has opened up doors for you, the two of you, in lots of different other communities. For myself, I have a master's degree in education and I'm certified in two specialties in education, special ed and elementary ed. So partially becoming a certified arborist just made sense if I'm going to be educating youth on trees. Part of it too, like Nakia said, I'm already going to all of these conferences or taking the classes. I might as well get rewarded for it. (laughs) Yes. Also, we are women in what has been a predominantly male industry. However, it's exciting to work with so many women within PHS and Parks and Recreations who have helped pave the way for us, for this to be a normal occurrence, right? Yeah, that's a good point. I think it's a great point. And, you know, we were talking about, because he always, <laughs> he always talks about arborists, you know, the guys in the trees, you know, and I said, well, I think right now that there's probably more people on the ground arborists than are up in trees. And I think as far as women go, the numbers are climbing much faster for women than for men. At least that's my observation. I could be wrong. It certainly looks like it, considering all the females that are working behind the scenes at PHS and Parks and Recreations. You were very much supported yes. by the like arborist community and the women that already were arborists, encouraging us to take the exam, ask questions, uh, and just like, you should do this. This would be really great. You should definitely do like that sort of thing and sharing resources. And yeah, there's definitely a very much a sense of community. Nikita and I both took the women's climbing class at Morris Arboretum, and we were pleased to be there with Hassan's wife, Tazneem, and um, Dana Dentiste, along with so many other women in our general community. It was, it was a lot of fun to take that course. Yeah, and the, and the woman who was teaching it was a former student of mine, and, and you probably went to school with her too, Nakia. And, and it's, it's nice to have that kind of camaraderie, as like the men had you know, for all these years. And it, it's it's really important for women to support women in the, mm-hmm. in the program. So yeah. And of course, as moms at home, and I know how we're not trying to exclude you, but as moms at home, you know, if we're moms, we might as well be certified arborists because they watch over the trees. <laughs> 
So we're pre moms. My son's proud to say my mom's an arborist. We had a newly renovated playground in our neighborhood and there were tree plantings that did not go so well. And of course, I'm on the ground. And so I contact Parks and Rec to talk to them about the issues. I talked with the person who was in charge of the renovation. I went there to see kind of oversee the planting of the new trees, which was done by a different contractor. And my son went up to them and they said, oh, you want to learn how to plant trees? No, my mom's an arborist. And the guy turned and looked at me and he said, are you here to watch me? And I was like, I'm here to watch you because I told Parks and Rec to come and watch you. <laughs> I was the third person there that day. And I said, I'm only here just to make sure it's really right. <laughs> no, I just, it was good to meet somebody else within the field. I knew that they were going to do a good job because of their credentials. Yeah. So when you say renovation, what, what was the scope of the work? It was a rebuild project through the soda tax funding source. Mm. So it was a parks and recreations park that was really dilapidated and they completely did an, an overhaul through that funding source. And greening is part of it, but it's uh-huh. still not quite really thought out, well thought out or planned. Yeah. But that's good to know that the soda tax money is going to good places like that. We, Our neighborhood has been a, a wealth of use of that funding source, which is... Yeah. Oh, fantastic. The recipients of that soda. <laughs> soda right. right. Just jumping back to Bear Root, too. Uh, one cool thing about Bear Roots is uh, just being around them when they come in and... Or, you know, helping with the planting. I learned a lot about trees just by looking at those root systems. I mean, let's face it, some of those root systems are pretty scary. And uh, you're scratching your head thinking, huh, I think there's 14 little fine roots on this tree. Hope it makes it, you know, it's like, uh, but you, you then you think, for me, it's like, here's this root system. It's full, it's rich, it's fibrous. And it makes me think more about soil and it just keeps me in touch with the whole process versus when you're wrestling a bare uh, bald and burlap tree into a into a planting hole, it's it's kind of uh, sterile. You know, I'm just you're handling burlap and yeah, the you bare, know the bare root tree option is ideal for this citizen science tree tender movement. And yeah, you learn so much more about the tree. It's such a great teachable moment when you have children and adults alike to see how a root system actually grows. Because many people assume they grow straight down. (laughs) And we're like, nope, they go straight out most of the time. They're really shocked to understand that. And then what's funny about bare roots and then when we're planting them, they're mostly in dormancy or just coming out of dormancy. I can ID a tree better in dormancy, a young and dormancy than I can a, a live one, <laughs> like a big mature one sometimes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Because you're handling them all the time and you get to know who they are. And it's, I think the other thing too about bare root is because you can hold this big plant in your one hand or two hands for a little a child, there's something powerful about that. I, I don't know how you feel, but I always feel like this is really powerful. Like I'm going to help this tree get even bigger than what it is. And it's, it's almost magical. 
It's magical. Yeah, when we plant up to 100 trees, we are literally touching every single trunk of every one of those trees. And so when I drive around the neighborhood or walk around and I see the trees that we've planted, I can say, I did this. (laughs) I was a part of this. And it's phenomenal to see at this point too, the trees that we planted 17 years ago, where some of them are actually- I was gonna ask. Like close to needing to go to be removed and replanted, you know, because of the unfortunate short life expectancy of an urban tree tree. So 17 years, do you think you're seeing trees like at eight inches caliper or something like that? Oh yeah, so even even fewer years than that. So. So in terms of the CEUs, we've continued to learn over time about trees and which ones are most suitable as urban street trees. And I think that in our 17 years, a few species have popped out as maybe not great ideas. Uh, yes. yes. You're absolutely right about that. And I'm changing Don't stop standard. now. Tell us. Tell, tell us. us. Tell us. Tell and us. And so I we feel like there's a few species that have given us trouble, um, one of them which I really love. I really, really love uh, one that I had in front of my own home before I moved to this house I'm in now that grew to three stories high in very few years. It was uh, seven years, I think, maybe that it took to get about three stories high. And a skyline honey locust is what I had. So I had a skyline mm-hmm. honey locust. And you can see mature ones all over the place where their roots uh, kind of stick out of the ground and take a lot of space in yeah. grassy areas. Um, and they uh, sometimes give trouble to homeowners and sidewalks and they lift sidewalks. And the one that I had, the species is still approved for street trees at the moment, but um, I think that it's one to look out for and reconsider planting in certain types of spaces. Four by fours may not be enough room for a honey locust, um, even though uh, they do still uh, get approved for planting, I feel like they might need a long uh, planting strip or Mm-hmm. I, yeah, I think you're right about that. I think you're, the observation that you've made just now is really correct. It, they need to be in a much larger space because of the, the surface roots that they have. They have a lot of thick surface they do. roots. They're yeah. fast growers. They're beautiful. They smell really great, but they do need a bit of care. They need to be pruned regularly because the, they always grow new branches when it rains. They touch people's heads as they walk by. Um, it really does. It really is a great tree. It's not a terrible street tree, but the types of tree pits we plant in Philadelphia in general are probably, I think probably four by four might be average. We have smaller tree pits that we have in our right. neighborhood and occasionally some larger ones, but the cost of removing that concrete is pretty high to get a big tree pit. And we rarely have any planting strips in our neighborhood. I know that in other neighborhoods in Philadelphia, they are kind of common or the street trees get planted in people's kind of lawns that like extend right of way. Yeah. But we don't have that here, like the Northeast. So it's, that's one tree that I love that I think a lot of people do love, but it's, it's a problem. It's a little problematic. problematic. Yeah. But in terms of magic, what else? So that's the main one that I would say, um, that is problematic in terms of its size and its capacity. Um, I think Jason probably would have something to say about species selection. Um, But in terms of magic, we've had people come to our tree plantings and say, we're going to keep coming back and planting trees because we feel like this is like one of the most important things we can do with our time. And homeowners get trees and they name them and they email us and they'd say, Mm -hmm. my 
my so-and-so is not doing so well. Can you come and take a look? Or am I doing the right thing here in my tree pit? Should I do this or that? Um, And so people really, I feel like the act of this instant gratification, I'm going to come out to this one event. I'm going to transform this block from total concrete to from zero trees to five or six trees on this block. It makes like an instant impact. And I think people feel really great about that. And I think just like Jason was saying, as she drives around the neighborhood, she's like, I did that. I think everybody that takes part in these tree plantings feels the same way. And they feel some sort of sense of ownership and like feel like they're a caretaker. And so they should be looking out. And so we get a lot of uh, emails from people just, you know, telling us about problems they see or things that are going on with trees. Yeah. You know, and if Jason, you go back to the Quaker, the old Quakers, the, 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 uh, the, um, they would plant trees either for their anniversaries and name them after themselves, or they would name them after their children. Because I, we had a house that the Quakers lived in, and they named all their trees after them. So they would come and check on them, even though we still live there. They would come and see if the trees were okay. And uh, it's kind of like a Quaker kind of thing. And I think that's really neat that, you know, naming trees gives it even more of an impact or a purpose for making sure that that tree now that's been named is is maintained and, and cared for. Jason, what do you want to say about species? Well, we've definitely planted some river birch as street trees and they've been approved under wires. No, not a good idea. No. I have a hard enough no. time with a river birch in my wow. big backyard. We've also had a tendency to just plant a lot of similar run-of-the-mill species like the syringa reticulata or tartarian maple or things like that. We're not really benefiting our ecology. Some of them just, I don't know, they're not really aesthetically pleasing anymore (laughs) when you see way too many of them. Oh gosh, the plums. I don't know. I'm so tired of them. And yeah, What's great, though, with the evolution of the science of arboriculture and everybody keeping up with their CEUs is learning the positives and the negatives of all kinds of other species and what can work. And the, the science and the data has led PHS to leverage for more funding for us to widen people's original pits and to to lobby for just larger pits. And this also comes to effect with the implementation ultimately over the next few years of the Philly tree plan and how that was created by people like Nakia and myself throughout the city. And then ensuring that our local political system lifts that up and protects it. And thank you for your time on the Philly tree plan. I know that your the groups like yours have put in a lot of time. You had mentioned, I have to just tell you that you had mentioned uh, birch, uh, birches. Um, Little King, Little King is perfect for under power lines. <laughs> Little King stays tiny. He's he's so cute. Maybe gets to be about like crazy. <laughs> not the same way. No, it's it's a, there's a, there's a good example at Scott Arboretum in front of one of the dormitories, and it's just short and it's so perfectly shaped and it's yeah, so we cute. We need some more variety for understory, underwire trees. We do. Yeah, yeah and then definitely. and related to that, um, well, in terms of species in our neighborhood, for whatever reason, over time. 
We've had a lot, we've had the arborists that work for the city specify small and stature trees, even in some spots where larger trees could go. Larger trees that have longer longevity that will be more beneficial now and over time. And so we've, you know, we keep repeating the message about how we want more natives. We want things that are larger in the spaces where they can go, like right tree, right place, not always tiny trees that have, you know, 30, 40 years. And then in, as a street tree, they don't even make it to that. Um, and so we continue to advocate for that sort of thing. Um, and it has changed a little sometimes. <laughs> or it's a columnar yeah. when it could really have something that could branch out a little bit more and actually provide shade. And then that's where it comes with us being able to help educate our property owners and people in general in our neighborhood. We do have a lot more people writing on the application. I'm interested in such and such species. And a oh, lot of that is dependent yeah. upon like their conversations they've had with us or their own research that they've done. Um, that's great. Yeah. That's great. We, we have to ask our favorite question. And that is, what are your favorite trees or group of trees? Just to be funny, my favorite trees in an urban environment are ones with large pits that I know are being watered and pruned properly. <laughs> uh, and you can see the root <laughs> flare. That's a big one. But ironically enough, I mean, there's two things. There's a huge tree that I used to see on my travels from Westchester to Coatesville during the holidays to visit family. I don't even know what kind it is. It was just a lone tree in a huge farm field and just, you know, mostly seeing it in dormancy, just the utter size and grace of the limbs was always very striking for me. Then again, it's just the average run-of-the-mill Christmas tree because I had so many of them on my property. And the funny story about how at Christmas time, my dad would sell so many of them and my mom would be relentlessly angry about the fact that we never had a Christmas tree until he would be in B1, drag it into the house the day before Christmas, but then it would be back in the ground the day after Christmas because it was part of his salary. <laughs> well, that's great. That's a great, wow. that's a great story. Yeah. <laughs> and I like, essentially you've, one of your favorite trees is an anonymous mm -hmm. tree, an, a no-name tree, which yep. is great. That's in the Ansel Adams moment there. Yeah, that Ansel, is. Ansel Adams photos of those totally bare trees. Oh, my I gosh. I also just want to buy Bryce's, uh, Buck Bryce's data collection here. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I, I listened to his podcast. I thought it was great that you he uh, tallied what everybody's favorites were. It's pretty interesting. The oh, first man. one I I thought that my, awesome. I thought that myself. I was like, if I piggyback off of Jacelyn's uh, comment, just thinking back to a tree that I didn't know the name of for a long time. I know what it is now, but it was Circus canadensis redbud. When I was in high school in Northern Liberties, I would take the bus home or take the bus around town, and I'd. It was spring, obviously, when I saw this tree in the spring. Every spring, I'd see this mm. tree over on Spring Garden near, um, I think it was like a an office building of some sort for like the firefighters, some sort of like local, like a union building or something like that. And um, yeah. there was a redbud there. And so in the middle of spring on a rainy day, like this vibrant pink flowers, um, I just, I don't know, I that just, that tree stands out to me when I think about 
think about this question and try to answer that. And I know that it was red, but now one of them is at least still standing. There was, I think, maybe three or four of them there when I was in high school, which was a long time ago, but now I know the name of it and I didn't know it then. And one thing that I love about red buds is that you can eat their flowers. <laughs> and so yeah, most, most of the three on my list are related to being edible in some way. <laughs> or the fossil, rec- fossil record great. trees are also amazing and native trees. So. Well, I'm going to share a quick edible tree thing that perhaps will be new information. Is Right before Christmas, we pruned a uh, elm right at the art museum. This is before I went into full retirement. Took a live branch off, not that big. I had my truck down. I took the branch home with me because there was the branch itself appealed to me. But I, you know, it's deep winter. I've, I've said, I bet these elm buds have a high sugar content. And so I ate a giant handful of elm buds and they were really oh. good. So squirrels love them. That's one of their favorite. Love them. That's one of their favorite. And that's probably because they get a sugar high from it. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. So maybe I have a little squirrel in my DNA. In fact, I know I do. (laughs) Oh, it's so great having the two of you on today and talking about your wonderful organization. Yeah, it's amazing. What you're doing for the city of Philadelphia is insurmountable. I mean, the amount of time and love and... Logistics. Logistics and... Thank you. Credits yeah. you have to have as arborists. It feels good. <laughs> it feels... It's, I always jokingly said, okay, I'll do that, but can I get paid for that now? <laughs> but now I can with my own business. And people reach out to me and Philly Tree people in general with very serious questions. And we're able to make the best connections for property owners and business owners and and to help our our colleagues out like Hassan at Tree Authority selling his trees or selling his work to care for them. It feels good to be in that space. Absolutely. Thank you so much. We thank you, the two thank gurus you so much. of Philly Tree <laughs> Thank you people. so much, uh, Eva and Hal. This was great. Take care. Have a great Have a great Bye-bye. Bye. The Planet Trillion Trees podcast is edited by Andromedan Recordings in Hollywood, California. Thank you.